Hey, Three Crosses family, this is Pastor AJ. I oversee life groups and discipleship here at Three Crosses. And today we are talking through Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Our topic today is how we pursue reconciliation. We're going to have a great talk on the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. And so with that, let's go deeper. Joining us to talk about pursuing reconciliation is Pastor Danny. Pastor Danny, welcome back after the week that Larry had. It's good to have you back at the podcast. It was, Larry's sermon was amazing on Sunday, so it was fun to listen to it, but it's really fun to be back in the podcast studio. Yeah, it was a great tee up to w- the section we're about to enter in. And, uh, you know, just for the beginning of this uh, episode, we've been talking about context, and I've been asking the past three episodes if we could just before we jump into the section today, can we recall what we've gone through? And I have a particularly specific question for you on this one, because it seems like Larry said last week we're entering into the content section of the Sermon on the Mount, which means that if we look back, we probably have completed an intro uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. So I know maybe some of you don't know that you are a homiletics nerd, meaning like (laughs) you love digging into sermons, seeing how they're constructed, seeing how they're built. So as you take us through where we've been on the Sermon on the Mount, what stands out to you in terms of how Jesus is formatting his introduction uh, that helps us understand what we're about to dive into into the content? Yeah, the series that we're in right now is called Kingdom Codes. And the idea for Kingdom Codes really starts with this reconciliation passage we're about to talk about, because what we'll see from this murder passage for the next you know, several sections of, of preaching is really Jesus defining this is kind of who we are as God's people, is who we're called to be. He's inviting us into this new way of life, which is different than the first two and a half sections of the Sermon on the Mount where he really kind of starts by engaging the audience and in the Beatitudes saying, hey, you guys are blessed. This is your starting point. And then moves to say, hey, just how you are right now, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then before he jumps into the codes of the kingdom, like reconciliation, he has this preliminary, like Larry brought out last Sunday, talking about, hey, we're about to talk about the law (laughs) and we're about to talk about the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. And so that in mind, now let's move into the sermon. And so we've had, you know, this is all the Sermon on the Mount. But if we were making this look like a classic sermon, like one of us would preach on a Sunday, it's almost like we just finished the introduction and now we're diving into the meat. Um, what are the actual kingdom codes for God's people? And I know having spent time with you, the introduction is always the most difficult thing to pin down. <laughs> it's usually the last thing that comes to mind. But I mean, what stands out to you about Jesus's introduction in yeah, all, all this? I think in Jesus' introduction, you know, normally an introduction sets up the sermon, sets up the topic, and really sets up the ending. So kind of when we fast forward to the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, he starts kind of circling back to, hey, I just shared these words with you. 
And your job now is to implement them, put them into practice, build your house on the rock. And so he kind of starts talking about like how strong a person you can be if you live this out. So it's kind of interesting looking at the polar opposites from Mm -hmm. these people input into the sermon as poor and meek and mild and uh, mourning and all of these, you know, sad sounding beatitudes and the output from the sermon built on the rock, built to last, Mm. standing firm in judgment. And so on one hand, they're blessed from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, as they start to implement these kingdom codes of Jesus, they become steadfast and firm-footed in their faith. Mm -hmm. And then he tells them, hey, go from here and build your life on these codes that I just gave you. Yeah, I love thinking about that bracket, like something in between, you know, the meek, the, the, the downtrodden situation and the built on the house, your house being built on a rock. All this stuff in between is going to get you there. And so I love talking about the introduction, conclusion, all those things in between. And, uh, you know, it made me laugh because I was thinking about your introduction on Sunday about uh, <laughs> the rat droppings. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was a but, yeah, uh, traumatic moment in the life of, I mean, our whole church, but the life of my <laughs> wife, especially in the moment. Oh, man. So without further ado, we have the introduction in play, and now we jump into what you said, the kingdom code, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so before we go any further, uh, it might be important to hear what Jesus is saying, that the crowd listening have heard it said somewhere you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So um, we, we heard a little bit about the audience last week from Pastor Larry. Uh, where are, have they heard this? How do the scriptures treat murder? And this is kind of an anecdote here, but I've been binge-watching uh, criminal shows like Law & Order or yes. CSI shows. And the thing I noticed about murders is that there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance to the situation. They're, they look at motive. They look at, um, is this person like there mentally? All these different nuances, all these different, you know, was it self-defense? How does the Bible deal with such a nuanced situation that, that comes with the territory of, of murder? Murder. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, the easy answer to that, where have they heard you shall not commit murder. It's the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> so this is the encapsulation of the law uh, that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so anyone who's read the Bible at a high level even, or even if they haven't, have probably realized that murder is not okay, and the Bible talks about it in the Ten Commandments. Right. Then Jesus says, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And that kind of brings up what, what you're talking about, AJ, where not only does the Bible tell them not to kill people, But then when we look at the law, kind of the kingdom codes for the Jewish people, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, there are all of these different laws and practices to govern how judgment occurs when murder happens. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, there's a high level, right? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this lex talionis of the Old Testament that gives the right to the, the, the judge and jury of the Jewish people to inflict corporal punishment on those who murder. So there's a, a, a sort of judgment that the leaders can yield. But then as you read through the law, there are so many nuances right. um, and provisions for folks who, who are even, you know, some of this is where like the American legal si- system gets some of this innocent until proven guilty. The Old Testament, if you're 
caught up in a murder. There are these places called cities of refuge where you can run and hide out until you can have your due process so that right people can't chase you down, retaliate, and take your life. Right. So due process was important. And when you open up the law, and it's important to realize that when we read the law, the Leviticus, Numbers, these different law books in the Old Testament, we actually, this is literally the law for the Jewish people. This is right. kind of like, you know, penal code 654 mm-hmm. point is, right, <laughs> Leviticus 24, 19. Uh, I don't know what that says, so don't look that one up. But uh, <laughs> the reason it exists is so that when something happens, they can kind of look through the law and say, what does the law say about about this case? Okay, uh, an animal was killed. What happens when an animal mm-hmm. is killed? Uh, it was a murder, but it was an accident. What do you do when it's an accident? It was a it was an accident. Someone fell off your roof, but they fell off your roof because you didn't put up the proper guardrails. What's the liability that we have as a person? Right? Or you killed them in cold blood, or uh, you killed uh, all these. There's so many different things, right? And so the law does kind of walk through how a judge or a council, religious council, would be able to adjudicate and try someone who was. Um, who was accused of murder. And, you know, and so in this passage, Jesus is saying, Hey, you've, you've heard that I said, when murder happens, you're subject to the judgment of the courts. And then he goes and escalates and says, but I say to you and, and starts to give his own kingdom codes. Yeah. I think it's interesting. We were talking about the Pharisees last week. And I think a lot of the times they get a bad rap because they take those laws, those 613 laws that are found in the Hebrew scriptures, and then they expound upon them. But I can only imagine that's like necessary because all these different scenarios keep coming up and they're they're constantly like adding more. Oh, it's like, oh, in this situation, this happens. In this situation, this happens, which I think gives even more weight to what Jesus does here in this next verse. So it says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in, the, in danger of the fire of hell. <laughs> so, first of all, wow, that escalated really quickly. <laughs> but, but second of all, I know your message was about you know, seeing the danger, seeing the true poison that anger truly is. And so we, we see that when um, he shifts from the conversation from murder to this inward posture of anger. And yet, what caught me off guard in in reading this text was I'm still a bit confused about this conversation all of a sudden about going to court. (laughs) (laughs) About people calling names against each other like Raka. We'll we'll get into what that means too. Uh, Or or, you fool. Like, okay, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. So, So what is Jesus trying to tell us about the poisonous nature of anger by the way he's articulating this passage here. It seems very confusing at surface level, but I'm just trying to wrestle with what's going on here. Jesus is acting in a way actually very similar to the Pharisees and religious leaders of that time who would use similar language to to escalate the requirements of the law. So the Pharisee might say, you've heard it said, honor the Sabbath, but I tell you, don't even leave your house on the Sabbath. Or I tell you, don't even spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Right? Don't do anything that smells like work, escalating the law. Or a Pharisee might say, hey, you've heard it said, like Jesus says next week, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even make eye contact with a woman. Right? Don't even talk to a woman who's not your wife. Some of the Pharisees even said, don't even make eye contact with your wife uh, because they're creating all of these laws 
extra laws that they hope will help you from breaking the real law. Right. Because if you don't leave your house on the Sabbath, you're not going to go to work and you're not going to be under judgment for breaking the Sabbath. And so they build behavioral laws around the law to help you not break the law. Mm -hmm. Jesus does, on one hand, the same thing, but on the other hand, the opposite. On one hand, he does the same thing. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, and he gives an escalated law, but his law is not a behavioral law. His, his escalation is a heart condition. So he says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but he doesn't say, I don't even say, don't even slap someone or don't even stab them a couple times, right? He says, don't be angry, right? Now that's different. Right. That's not a behavior. That's an emotion. That's an inward condition of the heart. But then... He escalates that, doesn't say, because if you do that, then you'll never break the law. Hmm. He says, and if you break this new law I'm giving you, you're going to be subject to judgment by the religious councils as well. Hmm. So I, you know, part of it is, uh, is hyperbole. There's not going to be anybody who says raka to their brother and is <laughs> answerable to the Sanhedrin literally. But it feels like at an emotional level, what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, Imagine a moment, you think of Moses when he murders the Egyptian, imagine a moment where you kill somebody and you're like, oh my goodness, right? The police sirens are coming. They're coming for me. I'm going to be standing before a judge. It's almost like he's saying, I want you to have that same fear and guilt mm. upon you when you do something as minor as snapping at someone or calling someone a name and think, mm. oh no, judgment is coming. I just broke the law mm. um, looking around for a police officer or something. So it's almost like he's escalating the sin to a heart level and he's escalating it in the sense where he wants us to feel oh no, judgment is coming if I do something as minor as, yeah, calling someone Raka or you fool. What does Raka mean? <laughs> no one really knows. I, I think that one of the uh, examples or the definitions I heard was like silly head or something, you know? Silly head. Uh, and it's, it's funny, you know, we do that too, right? We, right? we have these words we don't want to say, so we create other words, you know? It's like, you don't want to say like, you know, you idiot or like you, whatever, you say some terrible words, you're like, you goofball right <laughs> so it's kind of like he's doing that where it's like right. even those moments where there's anger in your heart it's about to overflow out of your mouth and you soften it you're still in trouble right so it's mm -hmm. because he's addressing not the words that come out or the gun or knife that comes out he's addressing the condition of the heart that causes your mouth to overflow you know idiot jerk or goofball <laughs> i love the juxtaposition between you know even with we were just talking about murder where you, you could see on one side people playing downstream of, of what's going on and, and reacting to all of the different scenarios that emerge and Jesus climbing back upstream and looking at where the source is and going to the heart and saying, hey, this is where it all starts. So if we can address this, it's going to, you know, eventually trickle down. But it might if you don't address it, it'll trickle down into the same location that we were just down over there. So I, I love that Jesus is like touching the center of it, the, the heart of it. And uh, another question here, I mean, it, it seems to escalate really quickly into the danger of hell. <laughs> Fire uh, hell you yeah. know, <laughs> what, what's, what's with the escalation there? Is it like the same thing? Like, it's really easy to see a murderer in hell, but then like you replace murder with anger and it's like, oh wait, that's going to lead to the same destruction? Is that sort of what we're supposed to think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's that same thing we see when we look at like the book of Revelation where it talks about all the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right. 
and some of those people's like murderers and it's like and liars and those who yeah. you know it's like wow like you know it's and what we know as believers reading a text like that is okay all of these sins put us into this river that leads to hell and the only rescue is is Christ bringing forgiveness and redemption mm. and pulling us from that river and putting us on his ship instead uh and and so I think that escalation is yeah, you know, I think saying that same thing, like anger puts you on a path towards judgment. Anger puts you on a path towards damnation. Anger anger puts you on all of the wrong streets <laughs> that you don't want to be walking down. <laughs> uh, and it's just fascinating to me that, like I said before, he doesn't just escalate what he doesn't want you to do, but he escalates the judgment. Mm. So where a Pharisee would say, don't leave your house because you don't have time to worry about judgment if you never leave your house. Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't, you know, don't say Raka, because if all you're saying is Raka, you don't have to worry about judgment. He's like, don't say Raka, and if you say Raka, you got to worry about judgment. So he like mm. escalates both the behavior and the judgment. Mm. So That's he's really neat. trying to tackle the like, what is wrong with you on the inside that results in behaviors that put you on the stream, whether it's a consummation of anger that leads to murdering someone, or a consummation of anger that leads you to murder a relationship, or say an errant word. You know, it kind of reminds me of. I think it's Matthew 12, where Jesus says, we'll be judged for every careless word we speak. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in the scriptures about, you know, the overflow of your heart outpours from your mouth. And that's really what God is going to judge is, did you have the self-control to keep it inside and actually deal with your heart? Or, you know, where did the sin come out? And so Jesus says, don't let the sin of anger come out of your mouth. Yeah, it seems like he's elevating this, the gravity Uh, of anger, and it leads to verse 23 and verse 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Pretty fun question here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you ever played Would You Rather? (laughs) I have. (laughs) It's a silly game, right? Where, you know, Here's a scenario, hypothetical. Would you rather do this or would you rather do this? I feel like the hypothetical <laughs> part is about to come real. I feel like I'm about to play would you rather. No. Okay. I wrote a possible would you rather. <laughs> okay, here we go, here we go, all right. No, but I mean, it seems like this is going on right here where it's like Jesus is creating this hypothetical, maybe not hypothetical, it might happen in real life where like somebody in the first century is going to the altar and they're left with a choice. Uh, do I make this sacrifice Or do I go and reconcile with my brother or sister? Like, would you rather do this or would you rather do this? And so I I think reading this choice might seem uh, foreign to us in the 21st century because we don't have like physical altars. And so what is the weight of this choice? Like what, what is, what are they facing when they're, they're left with this sort of, would you rather option? Would you rather give that sacrifice or would you rather go in and, reconcile with your brother what's that choice like what is the weight of that decision that jesus is trying to draw out on one on one hand this is connected with jesus ethics around forgiveness he says later in the sermon on the mount i think it's the sermon on the mount where maybe it's uh, adjacent to the the lord's prayer where he says you know forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and he says for if you forgive others you'll be forgiven but if you refuse to forgive you will not be forgiven hmm. and so throughout the teachings of Jesus there's this link between receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness and so on one hand he would be totally saying that if you're saying hey if you're standing before the altar trying to get forgiveness for yourself 
but then you realize you have something against your brother, forgive your brother or else you're not going to get any forgiveness at the altar. Hmm. And that's a radical enough teaching, but he doesn't say that. He says, if you're at the altar seeking forgiveness for yourself and you realize that someone has something against you, fix this that they have against you hmm. before you go to the altar. And he doesn't go to say you're not going to get forgiven if you don't, but maybe that's implied. The thing that I was thinking as I studied it was just what it would be like to be at the altar mm -hmm. and have that moment where it comes to mind someone who has something against you. Hmm. Because I think that is pretty common in the human experience, even if we don't still go to the altar. Mm -hmm. You might be in a time of prayer and in the midst of a time of prayer, you have this flashback to somebody that you've hurt and they're angry at you or there's a broken relationship or you might be at church about to take communion and as you're holding the communion elements, you have a flash in your mind to someone that a word of yours, they took the wrong way and now there's a strife in your relationship and there's a temptation in that moment to think, okay, you know what? I just need to seek forgiveness from the Lord. I need to go through the, with the communion here or this prayer time here. And I'm just going to hope that I can put that behind me. But it's almost like Jesus saying, like, that's not enough. Don't even finish the sacrifice. When that glimpse comes into your mind, even when you're about to sacrifice an animal for your forgiveness, drop it, right? Uh, I don't know what kind of gift he's referring to, but in a sense, <laughs> don't murder the animal. Uh Go back and reconcile with this brother, mend this relationship, because what you don't want is the blood of an animal to cover over the brokenness of a relationship. You want to mend the relationship. Like, don't let, mm -hmm. um, yeah, don't let this sacrifice cover this thing when you could fix it. Um, so part of it is just keep short accounts and fix these issues and then come back and give your gift at the altar. So I don't know if he's talking about a sacrificial gift. I didn't look into that. But you know, I wonder if he is because that kind of connects with this idea of shedding of blood and murder too. But hmm. that's a topic for a deeper discussion, going deeper, deeper. <laughs> and you pointed out um, one of the confusing things that a lot of commentators point out too. Um, it's worded in a way that it, it suggests that the problem might be with the other person. Hmm. So it says, like, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. So, like, the problem in this phrase lies with your brother or sister. You would expect it to say something like, and you remember that you have something against your brother or sister. Yep. Why do you think it's worded that way? What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I would guess, you know, a lot of times... People say, man, Jesus says this one thing, and then he says this other thing, and it totally goes a different direction. And I feel like 80% of the time, he doesn't do that. He's actually saying something that's consistent. Right. We just need to understand how to read it. And that's what I wonder with this time. He just finished talking about moments in life where your anger gets the best of you, and you say something stupid to somebody. Maybe I shouldn't say stupid. Say, you know, you call <laughs> someone a fool, you call someone an idiot, Rocka, you call them a raka, right? <laughs> and, and now he says, therefore, so it's an indication textually that it's a link with the passage before mm -hmm. therefore if someone has something against you and our mind should be like well why would someone have against have someone against this person right well maybe he called him an idiot or maybe he yeah, called yeah, him a fool yeah. maybe he did one of those three things jesus said just said not to do so i read it uh, and and the commentators that i read as well read read it as this person has something against you because your anger got the best of you and you hurt the relationship. And so now you got somebody out there who's hurt or mad at you or there's strife in your relationship because you got angry, you mouthed off, 
and now there's brokenness. And so go fix it. Stop going through these religious motions. Seems to me to be what he's saying. Yeah, I think it fits like human nature as well, where it's like if you do get angry and you do something silly, you're, you almost quickly forget about it. And that person might be just sitting in what you've done. And so it's, yeah, I think it's interesting how to, we've been talking about how it uses y'all a lot. Mm-hmm. And in this particular passage, all of a sudden the transition shifts to second person singular. Just like you, it starts you, singling you. Yep. you, you, you. So it's like a commission to action, knowing that our tendency is just to forget about it. Oh, it surely didn't hurt that person that much. And yeah, so I, I can see it matching human nature a little bit too. I know. I saw something on uh, the internet last week where someone was making a claim that um, children who grew up in the same household can kind of grow up in different households. Hmm. That like different kids, because of their relationship with their parents, can actually have a very different childhood experience than their siblings. And it made me think about what Jesus is talking about here, that you know, if, if there's a kid in your house who you scream at or who rubs you the wrong way as a parent, you snap at them or whatever it is, who knows what one errant word or a season of errant words or a lifetime of errant words, right? As the parent figure, you're kind of like, I treat all my kids equally. But as a child, you might be like, man, my dad said that thing to me when I was seven years old. I never forgot. And they have a very different view of their upbringing than the kid who grew up in the room right next door to them. Hmm. And I think that I thought about that a lot in this passage that, you know, when we sin against someone, especially with our words, we forgive ourselves pretty quickly. And we're like, you know what? I didn't mean it. And, you know, right. hopefully they forget about it. But sometimes people don't forget about it. And right. so I, I do think, um, you know, words hurt and part of what Jesus is saying is like, when you realize that your words have hurt someone, fix it. Like, right. don't keep going through your religious motions, fix it. Hmm. Uh, because sure, you didn't murder them, but in a sense, you've kind of stabbed the relationship and hmm. you might kill the relationship, which is, this is why it led into the fact that we are reconciling people. That's, that's how, that's our remedy is that we reconcile these relationships when we hurt people. We don't just hope they forget. Yeah. <laughs> And he gives us that advice. He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and recon- be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And then he goes into verse 25 here, uh, talking how to reconcile. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. We'll stop there because oh, man, this the next verse is epic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> this verse has sparked the age old skeptic. The question. skeptic's <laughs> question. I wish I had like a confetti cannon. Right <laughs> uh, I had to stretch a lot for this one because, uh, yeah, getting these skeptic questions are getting harder and harder. Well, cause part of it's cause like skeptics <laughs> love when Jesus rails on religious people. Right. So they're like, listen, I'm just eating my popcorn <laughs> for this one. So I came at this verse through the lens of a secular lawyer. <laughs> That's the skeptic. That's the skeptic, a right non-believing now. lawyer. And if you read it again, settle matters quickly with your adversary. Who's taking you to court. I don't know if that's the best legal advice. <laughs> Do it while you're on, while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and yeah, you get thrown into prison. I don't know if Jesus is getting 
giving good legal advice here. I think Jesus is giving... <laughs> I'll go right at the skeptic on this one. I think he's giving fantastic legal advice. For any adversary? For any adversary that comes to you? Okay, so... And so my, my question... Okay, I'll step back. That, <laughs> I see what you're getting at. I see what you're getting at. For, and that's why it, it seems pretty vague here. It's Always like settle you, outside of court. Yeah, if yeah. you have an adversary, settle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it seems to be saying. Yes, I do not think... To be clear, I do not think Jesus giving carte blanche legal advice... <laughs> To any of us who might be taken to court by an adversary, right? I think he's speaking metaphorically okay. in the under the umbrella of what we're talking about in this passage. Right. So remember where we started was that idea that it's not just when you stab someone to death that all of a sudden the police sirens come on, but when your mouth spouts off and you say something foolish to someone, you should imaginarily hear the police sirens come on and think, oh no, they're coming for me. So now in that same scenario... It's like, okay, you've got this adversary. You've got this person that you got angry. You said something you shouldn't have. The police sirens came on. You're like, oh, no, I messed up. Judgment is coming, and now you have a choice. Do I take this thing to court and hope I win in the court of law? Or do I realize that I'm guilty? I'm going to lose if I take this case to court, and so i got to settle out of court. Yeah. And Jesus, this is why I'm saying I'll go right at the skeptic, is very clear that in that case, when it comes to our own anger getting the best of us and someone being mad at us and we're offering this gift at the altar and our friend is mad at us because we shot our mouth off at them, he's like, listen, I know everything in you wants to justify your anger. You wish you had a day in court so you could explain why you said the things you said. I'm just telling you ahead of time, if you take this case to court, you will lose and you will be thrown in the pit, right? You'll mm -hmm. be thrown into the prison. So trust me, when this happens, when you get angry, you say something you shouldn't, you make someone sad or mad or whatever it is, you've got to settle out of court. Because if you wait for eternity or you wait for the court case, you're going to lose. And so you have to settle. Hmm. So even if you're offering a gift to give it to the altar, you go to them and be like, hey, can we just settle this thing? I do not want to go to court on this thing. And so it's almost like he gives us this urgency to settle, that's the word he uses, but settle is a legal language, to settle outside of court and deal with this person. Say, hey, can we make a truce? Can we call it even? I need to apologize to you. Can we call this whole anger thing off? That's what reconciliation looks like, mm -hmm. is saying, we don't need to take this to the judge. We don't need to take this to God, which is so beautiful because like so often, if you've ever done something stupid and someone's mad at you and you're all defensive about it, you're already creating your opening argument for the court case in your mind. <laughs> it's like, this isn't right. going to court. You're going to lose. Drop it. Drop it. Settle right now. And so I don't think he's giving carte blanche legal advice. <laughs> I think he's giving metaphoric legal advice to those times in life that our anger gets the best of us. We hurt someone mm -hmm. and we want to have our moment in the sun to tell them why they're wrong. He's like, nope. Go to their house and say, hey, I want to drop this. Will you drop these charges? I'm sorry. Let's settle this thing. Yeah, I think to the skeptic, bringing this question, taking verse 25 out of context. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole thing. I was like, if you right. take it just like legal advice, it's out of context. But I think the whole passage has to be read in its context. He's using right. legal language from beginning to end. Right. Uh, and it's, yeah, he's building a case for why we should take anger seriously. And he's hoping that we listen to him. And does this, I mean, random question, final qu thought on this train of thinking, does this speak into how Christians ought to treat the court system at all? Or, I mean, is it pretty much narrowed down to like this anger issue and, and keep it in context? 
I don't know if this passage talks about the court system, but there's other passages in the New Testament that talks about how Christians should not be using the court system right. to adjudicate their matters. First Corinthians we, six, I think. I don't know where it is in it. Yeah. First Corinthians. I yeah. don't know. And the argument there is you, you don't need these worldly people adjudicating these matters, figure right. it out, right? Just right. settle your matters with the people right, right. in your family. Right. And that's, you know, even power to this passage we didn't talk about is when a brother or sister has something against you. And mm. so part of it is saying within my kingdom, this is the code of ethic within my kingdom mm. as my family, you guys figure this stuff out, right? <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's funny. He's, he's not the father, he's the son, but in the sense, God's our father, Jesus is God. As the children of God, I've done this to my children all the time where they're fighting about something and they come to me to adjudicate. I'm like, listen, figure it out. Like you, you're not taking this to court. If you got, this comes to court, you're both grounded. Like you figure it out with each other. I don't want to talk about this. And so I don't think Jesus is saying, I don't want to talk about this, right. but I think Jesus is like, are you serious? You want to bring this to me and see who's guilty? I'm guessing you're both guilty. Mm. Figure it out with one another, figure this out in the family where the kids and kids are prone to fighting all the time. So sorry, skeptic, if you're going to take this passage and argue that Christians are going to set up some sort of, sort of theocracy and uh, <laughs> bypass the legal system, you're taking things out of context. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a little stretch, but uh, it's, a, it's stretch. a metaphoric legal system that he is building as an argument to talk yeah. about the idea of anger. Yeah. And let's conclude with verse 26, because that's oh, man. The, the, the heavy hitter. Because Jesus says, truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last and penny. The metaphor <laughs> of like, oh, it's just a legal system metaphor and you're going to jail. I'm making air quotes, going to jail. And then he like switches into the like present tense, truly like, amen, verily I tell you, you will not get out. It's like, are we talking about real jail? Like, <laughs> when did we start talking about real jail? I thought this was metaphoric jail. And so I, again, I, I do think, right, we see in Revelation other places, like liars, murderers, these people go to hell. I don't, he is not saying that, hey, if you've got an anger issue, you go to hell for it. We know we go to heaven or hell based on our relationship with Christ and the forgiveness that comes from him. But I think he is putting this point on to say, listen, this is a big metaphor, but I'm not just talking metaphorically. Like, seriously, murder, anger, these these sins, This is these are the types of things that put people on a highway to hell. Mm -hmm. So get off of that highway. So I do think he's just underscoring the severity of this, that this is not just a funny anecdote. This is not a thought experiment. It's not merely a metaphor. We're talking about real life and life is at stake. Heaven and hell is at stake. Let's be a people who learn how to live in reconciled relationships. Yeah. And it's just at the end of this analogy, it's saying like the full payment is required because reconciliation didn't happen. And so there's this full payment and I think you gave us this really hopeful message of reconciliation and how the gospel speaks into that. And, uh, you know, one of the conversations we were having off air was the balance between allowing God to transform your heart, your, your angry heart, and the actions that are prescribed right here. Like, settle matters quickly. Leave your gift at the altar and just go. And so talk to us about the balance. Um, I, I can see how some of us might be tempted to say, oh, well, we really can't do it because our hearts are sinful and we, mm -hmm. we're just going to be passive and, and return back to the altar with our gift because we need to make sure we give, off, give the gifts constantly, give the gifts constantly, be in prayer constantly, and sort of hope that gets mended. Mm -hmm. So what's the relationship between our hot heart posture towards God and our actions? 
there's a spectrum of people. There's a, there are people who say, you know what, this is just who I am. I'm an angry person. Right. And those types of people we think that's, I feel like that's not enough. Like you should try a little harder to not be an angry person. Right. <laughs> then there's the people who say, you know what, I'm an angry person and only God can change me. So, uh, okay. Right. And it's, that's kind of true. Like only God can transform our hearts. But when someone says that you think, okay, but it doesn't feel like you're trying to cooperate with the spirit's invitation to you at, at all. Mm-hmm. And so maybe theologically part of that's correct is that God is the agent who transforms our heart. But what Jesus invites us into in this passage is not merely saying you have a heart problem, so ask God for a new one. Mm -hmm. But he gives us behaviors Mm -hmm. that we can step into to cooperate with the spirit in the transformation of our hearts, which is a beautiful thing. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago who has a, a background in addiction and recovery, and he was talking about how the the 12-step program really helped transform his life. And he said, you know, the thing that I realized is that addicts need something to do. Hmm. He said, I'm used to using, I'm used to doing the wrong thing all day long. And so when I come to this 12-step program and I connect with my higher power, for him it was Jesus, which is how his heart was transformed. He didn't, he said, Jesus didn't just transform my heart because I showed up. Jesus transformed my heart as I did the work, as I had to face my sins and write them out on paper, as I had to make amends and have really difficult conversations, as I had to walk through this process, I got to a place of vulnerability where all of a sudden my life was being lived in the open instead of in the darkness. And those behaviors that I walked in with the Lord, God used to transform my heart within me. And so we see Jesus doing the same thing, which is, again, a beautiful parallel to the the Pharisaic teaching of, hey, here's some new behaviors you can do so you don't break the law. Jesus says, let me give you some new behaviors to do that will transform your heart. Hmm. And so if you're someone who struggles with anger, it's not good to say, well, that's just how I am. And it's not enough to just say, well, I hope God changes me and I'm praying for it. What Jesus advocates is if that's you, yes, pray that God would transform your heart. Realize that's how you are right now. But then do these behaviors that he gives you so that you can partner with God in the transformation of your heart. And those behaviors are reconciling with those that you've wronged. And so if you're thinking, man, I'm an angry person. I don't know how to fix it. There's so much collateral damage. So many people I've hurt. How do I change? Do I just pray? You do pray. Mm -hmm. But then if you want something to do, Every time you think of someone who you've hurt with your anger, start practicing humbling yourself, going to them and saying, hey, I just wanted to call you up today because I've just been trying to make some changes in my life and I realize that that my anger has hurt you and I just want to say that I'm sorry. And there's something about the behavior that Jesus prescribes that doesn't merely fix the relationship but also can fix our hearts Mm. as we learn to live in this uh, vulnerable community. I, I listened to a pastor one time who said, you know, so often um, we sin and then we go to Jesus, we get forgiveness, and then we get up and we sin again, then we go to Jesus, and then we sin, then we go to Jesus. And he said, you know, part of that process, the way it works is through going through the motions of the gospel, hopefully eventually you come to the point where before you sin, you think, I'm just going to cut out the middleman. I'm just not going to sin in the first place, you know? And so uh, part of that could be the same thing with with anger. It's like you blow up at someone, you got to apologize, you get forgiveness, it's wonderful, then you do it again, then you do it again. You hope that eventually you get to a place where you're like, you know what, I'm not going to scream at this person <laughs> because it's so painful and awkward to have to reconcile. And I feel like such a goofball or a raka. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just going to skip out the middle band and I'm just going to keep my anger contained. You know, So I do think our, even if it's subliminal or subconscious, I do think our hearts can be transformed as we walk in these behaviors that Jesus prescribes. 
So one one more pastoral question for you. Say somebody's listening to this and they're they're thinking about their own anger and they've realized that, okay, yeah, maybe I have hurt somebody. Maybe there is a fractured relationship in my life. I hear the sirens coming. I know where this is going to end. I don't want to go to trial. I know where it's going to end up in the, the fire of Gehenna, like all of these different things. And what they've done is they've listened to you and they said, okay, I'm going to call this person up. I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I'm going to say, um, you know, everything that I need to say in order to begin the process of reconciliation. Uh, how would you encourage them to then continue in that process of reconciliation? What does reconciliation look like scripturally um, to help them on their journey? Because I, I can imagine one, one, hey, I'm sorry, it might be enough, but so, uh, oftentimes if the hurt is that bad, it's, it's not enough. So yeah. how would you encourage that person? I think it's three different facets of it. One, there's sometimes a forgiveness that we have to give to someone else. Mm -hmm. In these cases, maybe it's a black and white where you got mad, you snapped at somebody that did nothing wrong. Uh, other times it's like it was a fight because they did something wrong. And so part of the practice is starting with releasing them from your judgment um, as well. And if there was something like that, maybe part of that is like, hey, I know we both had a part to play. I want to let you know I've forgiven you and I'm just asking that you might forgive me for the part that I've played. So that forgiveness is part of that. The other part is like sometimes reconciliation doesn't happen. <laughs> you call them up and they're like, you know, you rock us, stop calling me, right? Like <laughs> get away from me. I don't, I don't forgive you. No, like get away. Like, and you know, the scriptures say, hey, as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Mm -hmm. I don't think Jesus is saying you're not going to get forgiven until you finally make it reconciliation reconciliation happens. Sometimes you can't make it happen, but I would say going through those motions of humbling yourself and seeking it, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how they respond. The power is still in you humbling yourself and seeking it. The beauty of a reconciled relationship might not exist, but the power still exists in humbling yourself. And then the third thing I, I would say, if you want to, if you want to grow in this is that when you mess up in any way, whether it's anger or something else that breaks a relationship, you break trust. And when you break trust with someone through your errant behavior, and I'm sorry doesn't fix it, but it puts you on the path towards fixing mm, it. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people all the time, this is what I heard from another pastor, is that trust equals truth over time. Mm. And so part of it is, right, a real apology is, this is what I did. I'm really sorry. I'm going to commit to not acting that way anymore. I hope you can forgive me. And they say, hey, I forgive you. And now it's your job to not do it again. Right? Because right. if you do it again, you go through the motions of apologizing again, but you've broken that trust even in a deeper way. And so I would say for the people who've had a repeated offense, it's like it's if you want to build that trust back, that reconciling trust, it starts with a reconciling relationship but then it's investing in that relationship and living a righteous life over time. And if you mess up, you got to start over again. But, and sometimes it goes too wayward. You can't reconcile it, but the reconciling conversation is the beginning of the journey. It's not the end. And sometimes it takes a long track record of success, especially if there's repeated offenses on the other side of confession before someone would say, you know what? I can tell you're a changed person. But that's the goal, is that we become these changed persons that are changed so drastically that the people who used to hate us say, okay, I can't, I can't deny that something is different in you now. Yeah, and I think even that realization reminds me of just the weightiness of anger, like the thing that we've been talking about. And, you know, praise God for sending Jesus to go to the source and call it out 
or else a lot of us would be blind to it. And uh, yeah, he's telling you it's coming for you. You know, if, if you don't pursue reconciliation, it's just going to lead to that struggle that you're talking about. You know, it's, it's a tough conversation. It's a tough road ahead, but you know, taking first steps to get there. Really helpful, really helpful information. So uh, Pastor Danny, thanks for opening our eyes to the rat droppings of anger. Wow. <laughs> the invisible <laughs> and, poison inside of And the of way us. that uh, it can take us to court really, really quickly. So, Well, this was fun. <laughs> Next week we talk about lust and adultery. So oh the party has just begun. Here we go. Yep. Right.